Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is flowering in the womb of your consciousness. This is failing to maintain a certain level of expertise. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California, where I am sitting in a chair uh, in a room, in an apartment, in a building, on a street uh, in a city called Los Angeles, which I already mentioned, but uh, repetition is a motif in this monologue. Uh, I'm employing it as a device. And I hope you are enjoying uh, this device that uh, I'm employing. <laughs> should I do a monologue that rhymes someday? Maybe I should try that just as an experiment, just to mix it up a little bit. Uh, maybe do some freestyling. Perhaps I could uh, make some beats and then do some freestyling. I have a friend actually who used to say that. Uh, I would, uh, you know, I'd be talking to him and I'd say something like, hey, uh, what are you doing tonight? And he'd be like, uh, I don't know. I'm going to stay home and make some beats. Which I never fully understood because he wasn't a musician. But uh, you can make beats, apparently, on a recreational basis, in case you're interested. 
So I hope you're doing well out there. Are you good? Are you happy? Relatively speaking, is everything okay? Are you freezing cold? Are you hypothermic? I feel like it's really cold. I'm worried about these temperatures. <laughs> I'm worried about you. Are you disgruntled? Uh, are you in the fetal position? Are you in a snowbank? Are you listening secretly in your cubicle? Are you slack-jawed? Please close your mouth. So uh, I just did my annual purge. I did it last year at around this time, uh, and now I just did it again. I got rid of stuff. I got rid of a lot of books. Uh, I got rid of uh, dozens, possibly even hundreds, and uh, sent them back into circulation. And I also got rid of about half of my closet. And what I realized in doing this is that it's very easy. It's very easy to get rid of stuff. Uh, it's one or you know one, maybe two trips to Goodwill, uh, depending on the size of your uh, vehicle. And uh, you know that's the easy part. The hard part is not accumulating the stuff in the first place. That's what kept going through my mind as I did this. Like, how could I possibly have accumulated all of this stuff uh, in one year? Which you know isn't the, it's not technically the case. Some of this stuff I've had for. Uh, much longer than one year. But the point is that it just seems uh, egregious. All of this stuff in my possession that I'm not really using, but yet I'm keeping it in my uh, my abode. You know? <clears throat> and uh, I guess I just feel like all of my possessions, in, an, in a perfect world, all of my possessions should fit easily inside of a 10 foot by 10 foot room. On the floor. No stacking. <laughs> That's my feeling. And, I, and you know what? I'm not talking about furniture or big ticket items like beds and couches and stuff like that. I'm talking about personal items, clothing, books, uh, technology, various other uh, accoutrements, etc. I just don't want to have stuff, generally speaking. <laughs> stuff makes me nervous. It overwhelms me. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Ravi Mangla. Uh, he's a young writer from uh, Rochester, New York, who has a new novella out called Understudies, which is available now from an independent press called Outpost 19. Uh, very happy to, to get a chance to talk with Ravi here at the dawn of his publishing career. And uh, incidentally, he's uh, the second writer in a row on this program who happens to deal with uh, clinical anxiety issues, James Scott being the other. Uh, so 
what can I say? It's a, it's a bit of an anxious beginning to 2014, purely coincidental. And, uh, I find it somewhat interesting that this is, you know, that this has happened. What is the meaning, you know, what is the meaning of this, uh, this particular cosmic accident? I had something to say about this, but now I forget. Anyhow, here we go, folks. Are you ready? Are you in the ready position? This is my conversation with Ravi Mangla, and his new book, once again, is called Understudies. I am in Rochester, New York, and more specifically in a small study, uh, looking out the window at the massive amounts of snow that have fallen over the last day. Yeah, I know. You guys are in the middle of a blizzard. or like The blizzard just passed, right? Yeah, we got we got hit pretty hard. It's you know sub ten degrees, a uh, foot and a half of snow. My God, but that's got to be. That, I, I'm sort of in like I mean I'm in Southern California where it's kind of the opposite of that. But um, from a, a writerly and readerly perspective, I'm sort of envious because when it when you get that kind of weather, you're just like okay, I'll just sit inside. There's nothing else you can really do. Yeah, exactly. It gives me a lot of time to read. Yeah. So in Rochester, yeah. is Rochester the former home of uh, or the home of Kodak? Or am I? Yeah. Yeah. It, okay. So now. Bankrupt Kodak. Yeah, so Kodak. That's so sad to me. I feel sad about yeah. that. They didn't seem to anticipate uh, the turn to digital. Right. A little behind the times. Yeah, uh, but Kodak used to employ a large share of uh, Rochester's workforce, and you know now it's it's small. That's but uh, the influence is huge with George Eastman, who founded it. Yeah, yeah. Well, didn't he kill yeah. himself? I want to say he did. Yeah, he did, but he did it in a kind of beautiful way. <laughs> if that's possible, where he, he said, "My work is." I, I saw, you know, in the museum. There's they turned his house into a museum, and there's the the suicide note there, and it was, uh, "My work is done. What's left to do?" And that was that. That was it. Yeah, he, I, apparently he was terrified of becoming a frail old man, and he just wanted to end things. I don't know at his peak. That is, well, I guess, you know, to each his own. Um, I, yeah, I so how did you wind up in Rochester? You lived there your whole life or? Lived here my whole life, yeah. Okay. Do you like it? I mean, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm used to it. I, I like the Northeast. I'll say that. What about it? Seasons. I love seasons. Okay. You know, I, I used to go out to California a little bit when I was a teenager and my dad lived there. Um, and, you know, I... I, I think it's a matter of getting used to, but something about it felt unnatural. <laughs> right. Well, no, I grew up with seasons, and then I've lived out here. I'll tell you this. If you live out here, uh, you get used to it pretty quickly. Like, you know, give it a year. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're like, well, I, I, you can kind of detect a season, <laughs> but it's, yeah, yeah. it's a very gentle season. <laughs> They're subtle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, that's cool. And, and uh, did you grow up in, like, an artistic uh, home? Like, are you from writerly stock, or are you kind of... Uh, no. No, not at all. Very, very rational, pragmatic stock. Okay. What does that mean? Uh, dad's an engineer. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, they're practical, grounded people. And then came you. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. I mean, but you, I, I, you know, I detect a calm rationality in your voice. I don't, you don't seem uh, uh, like super, um, I don't know, just on first instinct. I don't, I don't guess that you're super volatile uh, emotionally. Or could, am I wrong? Mm, I wouldn't say volatile. No, no, you're probably right there. Okay, so this is you. So you're just a, you come from rational stock. You're rational, but you're also uh, an art, you know, an artistic sort. Um, do you find that um, I don't know that sort of rational approach to life uh, finds its way into your work? Like you know, are you a pretty methodical writer? Like 
you don't get yeah i i definitely say so i think uh i think i was a big math guy growing up more than english more than anything artistic and i think the writers that i'm drawn to or the kind of writing i'm drawn to is technical there's a you know precision to it there's a uh yeah very precise work yeah, I think that's what I really love. Yeah. Okay, so when you're reading someone who is precise in in a way that you really respond to, like what is it that you're zeroing in on? Oh, I just like the idea of someone considering every word in the sentence, really uh really spending a lot of time on the work and and you know, have a real clarity of vision. Okay. So, you know, like a, a William Gass type or someone like that who spends 36 years working on a single book. Right. So how long did you work on your book? <sighs> not 36 years. <laughs> definitely not 36 years. Uh, about six or eight months. Okay. You know, it's a short novel. so. Well, sure. And so when you're working on it and you're trying to achieve some you know, semblance of uh, precision in, you know, of the kind that we're talking about, uh, like what, uh, what are you doing, especially on revision? You know, are you, like, do you sit there and just pour over – each individual word. I mean, I guess it's it's what most people do when they revise, but it, it sounds like you might like take it down to a level of detail that's like a step beyond what what is even normal. Or am I over overstating it? I don't know if it's too much different than the standard process, but you know, the sound of the sentence is really important to me. I'm gonna say it over and over again until it sounds right, until everything seems in order. Okay. Yeah, I'm big on that too. I think like if if yeah. the if the work doesn't sound good when you read it aloud, then something's the matter. Yeah, I mean, don't you get irritated if uh, there's yeah you can't really move past it? Yeah, no, I, I'll yeah. sit there and fixate. And and the the problem is that uh, I don't know. Like some like the the problem is that like one day I'll I'll think that I got it by the tail and I'll have the sentence in order, and then the next day I'll wake up and I'll reread it, and you know that's <laughs> yeah. just, that's yeah. just, that's the headache of it, you know. Yeah, it's never right. So, and your work is funny. Like you have, uh, you have some humor. Um, like it sounds like you sound kind of deadpan humor. Is that right? Do you have kind of a dry sense of humor? I think that's very true. Yeah. Okay. Definitely a dry sense of humor. Okay. And do you get that? Are your parents like rational? Like is your father, I, your father's an engineer. Does he have like rational, like engineer <laughs> humor? Is that, is that a, he has a very broad sense of humor. He has a very, uh, loud and outgoing sense of humor. So like slapstick and everything. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Whatever the opposite of deadpan is. Okay, okay. Maybe dadpan. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, so as a child growing up in Rochester, you were big into math. Yeah, yeah. Those were definitely my subjects. Like, so you got all like like you you were good at calculus. You went the whole way. You went the whole way. I don't know. Like, I I feel like I hit the wall. Like, I was good at like until like trigonometry. I got A's in math, but it was like. And and part of it, I think, was just a function of me getting sick of being in school and wanting to just get out. And, yeah. Uh, I didn't try. But, like, I remember getting to, to calculus and just being like, okay, like, this is... This, <laughs> I've reached my end with this. It, yeah. yeah, this is just silly. Like, this is not going to serve me. And I, I, you know, and I was right. I have not needed it or, or thought about it since. But um, did you, I mean, did you find that uh, stimulating? Like, were you totally into that level of math? Uh, I think there was, you know, up until a certain point, then I'd say the last two years of school went, uh, went a little wayward. So, <laughs> okay. So like, yeah. to what degree, like, were you partying or did you just, were you just sick? No, not partying. Just, uh, I, I, I left school at 17. Oh, you did. Okay. To do what? Yeah. 
I don't know, stay home. So wait, <laughs> Not much of a plan behind it. You just quit? I quit, yeah. Did you graduate early or did you just say, I'm, I'm tapping out? I, I was just done, yeah. Well, okay, so what precipitated that? I, I'd say a large amount of anxiety. Okay. Heaps of anxiety. Just adolescent anxiety or was there something specific? No, you- no, you know, clinical anxiety. Oh, clinical. Okay. That's funny. I just talked to uh, James Scott uh, on the, the last episode, and uh, he suffered from, like, debilitating panic attacks uh, all throughout yeah. his youth. Was this what you were doing? Was, were you dealing with something similar? Yeah, very similar. Very similar. Okay. So um, was it one of those things where, like, you just wouldn't want to get up and go to school, or, and then did you ever have, like, the I'm having a heart attack thing? Or There's a lot of resistance to going to school, and then when I got there, there would be... Uh... Yeah, terrible panic attacks, and I became very thrifty with figuring out ways to skip classes. Um, yeah. Okay, so clinical anxiety, but like, were were there, like, was it social anxiety? Were you, um, did you have friends, you know, or were you like nervous about girls, or did it, did it have like specific manifestations that would recur, or was it just like anything could set you off? There's some social aspects to it, but I mean, I, I had friends, plenty of friends, but when I would be in a classroom, it was a confining aspect of being in that classroom that uh, that became a little bit overwhelming, and, you know, fortunately, my parents, uh, I, I technically, I dropped out three separate times, and each time, I was kind of encouraged to go back, and then finally, the third time, it, that was for good. That was it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, can I ask you, are you uh, comfortable speaking in public, like do, doing readings and stuff, or is public speaking? Never done a reading. Never done a reading. Ever. Okay. Cause no, I, even this is terrifying for me. It is. Well, I'm glad we're on the yeah. phone. You don't have to actually like be in the room with me. <laughs> and you can. Yeah. How many, how many people actually come into, I don't know, the studio or, or where you're uh It depends. It depends. You know, it's all, it's all predicated on uh, location. So if people are in sure. Los Angeles, then I'll do it that way. Um, but I would say it's like three out of 10, maybe less. Uh, yeah. Just because, you know, right, you know if, if, if I were interviewing people in entertainment, it would be different. But writers live all over yeah. the place. So I just have to kind of make do with what I can do. But, um, you know, I have a buddy who is very bright, one of my best, best friends, um, but has like a horrible uh, fear of public speaking that I think is part of maybe a broader social anxiety. And uh, he never was able to finish uh, college. And I think like looking back on it, and he might agree with this, the, the problem was that whenever there would have to be like presentations or any kind of like speech in front of the class, it like was so um, terrifying to him that he would just leave. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. yeah, that's that's brutal. So, um, I mean, was that, I mean, I guess that's kind of, uh, that was kind of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know if speaking in front of the class was as terrifying to me as just sitting in it, sitting it in, in it and feeling that I had to stay there for 40 minutes and I, I couldn't move, you know, kind of a claustrophobic, uh, feeling. But like, yeah. Okay. I kind of, I felt like a similar, um, distaste for it but it was more just like i just want to be free you know like i don't want yeah to, yeah i don't want to be on somebody's schedule and they have to you know they get to tell me where i get to be and you know i think a lot of writers have that but um i was able to i guess i was able to gut it out did you go to college immediately after high school or? yes to my regret uh yeah. I, i've said this before on this show but i regret not having a not taking a gap year like it with yeah. with some degree of structure like not just like a complete you know go fuck off year but like if I, if I could have, you know, moved abroad and worked some job or 
done, you know, gone and had an adventure, but, you know, worked and, and, um, you know, lived that way without having school to consider, I think it would have helped me just because I think I entered college still feeling like I'm so tired of living in this structured academic existence and studying and taking tests. And, um, I just wanted to live my life. And so what I did was I just went to college and basically didn't go to class and just school, you know, eked by and did whatever I had to do to, you know, stay afloat. But I didn't really take advantage of the education as much as I should have because I wasn't in the mood for it or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I hear that from a lot of people now where they think about if they could go back to college, how differently they do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I like there are some people, to their credit, I guess, um, who are either like, you know, fish to water or what is it? Ducks to water? Fish to water? I don't even know the expression. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like they, they, they naturally um, acclimate to any kind of academic environment uh, with ease and they feel good about it and they love being in school and they love being test takers and you know that's and they never want to leave academia yeah. never yeah and like you know that's that's lucky for them because they uh they can make that transition and i think there are there are also people who have maybe a more pronounced and defined sense of ambition um hmm. you know than i did and and still you know probably do not like i want to do well but like i sometimes feel like i don't have like the manic drive <laughs> do you, that that it like maybe it requires in life uh or that life yeah. might require of people like i don't know you know i sometimes look around and i'm like my god like i don't know if i have uh the same kind of uh i guess what's the word for it hunger or manic drive uh, like do you do you have that like do you have some sort of literary ambition that's burning like red hot inside of you and you know uh, I, I don't think so i think if there was that it's diminished over time yeah, I think yeah, and and do you know why? I don't know. I I think I've become kind of jaded with the whole process, as a lot of writers become. Yeah, I mean, I think, but I think too, like, you know, there there's some jadedness in me. Uh, there's also like this disillusionment about like the the likelihood or the odds that I would ever be able to make a living doing it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that you know you have to be content, I think, or prepare yourself to be content with like two hundred readers. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, in your life. And like, that's still 200 people and, uh, it's nothing to sneeze at, but it's definitely a far cry from like whatever, uh, dream I nurtured when I was like 19, 20 years old and thinking about possibly writing books, you know? And, and, yeah. I, and I think that same kind of jadedness, I should say, you know, can be felt by people who have 50,000 readers, but dreamt of having 50 million, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, everybody on every different scale has, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I think like, you know, is the jadedness a function of like the system itself and the prospects for, um, you know, sustenance and making a living? Is that what's driving the jadedness or is the jadedness um, more directly a product of, uh, you know, my expectations and, you know, the the vision I had of you know, of how things would play out, you know, and, the, and like the the uh, the dissonance between how things actually played out and how. I wish they would have. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that I don't know if I had great expectations going into things. I don't think I ever anticipated making a living. I think I just wanted to do something, do it as a hobby. Uh, I think I would have been happy doing it as a hobby. Or, I mean, I, I am happy doing it as a hobby. But uh, you wonder how long it's going to take to grow that audience and, and if 200 readers is enough, if it's worth it, if you're making an appreciable effect on people's lives and not even their lives, just their reading lives. And, uh, 
you know, if, if it's worth it. Well, yeah, I mean, but the thing is, though, this is another another way of thinking about it is that the the creative act itself, the act of sitting down and making the work uh, is providing for me or providing for you or whoever's doing the, you know, doing the work, um, you know, tangible value and benefit. There, there's something um, nourishing about creative work and that we have yeah. to we have to derive uh, you know, primary satisfaction from the doing of the thing rather than from the thing itself, if that makes sense. No, that's true. Yeah. It's the only way. Yeah. If I, you know, easier said than done. I think. Yeah. So, okay. So you didn't, you, you, you drop out of high school. Um, did you wind up getting a GED or did you just sign off and say, I'm done? What it was, was around 20. I think I, I contacted the high school again and, uh, asked if there was any way I could, get those remaining credits, finish them up, and, and get my degree. So they let me uh, take online classes at the uh, community college. Okay. And so you, and then you were back in, a, in an academic environment? Sort of in an online environment. Oh. In the okay. University of Phoenix environment. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good, though. Online schooling, like that, that might help uh, with the, the feeling of um, being trapped inside of a classroom, right? No, it was perfectly comfortable. Uh, but it's a different way to learn. Definitely a different way to learn. Okay, so you did wind up getting your uh, high school diploma, and yep. then did you wind up going and getting any like college uh, degree? No, you did not. Nope. Okay, so what have you been doing since then? Like, like how? First of all, how old? Do you mind if I ask how old you are? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Twenty-five. Okay, so you're young. You've got a, uh, you've got a lot of time. Twenty-five is a good age. I feel like. Is it? Is it a good age? <laughs> <laughs> uh. I I don't know. I maybe for some people. I, you know, it's you know, what is it uh hindsight's 2020 or it's easy to look back with rose colored, you know, through rose colored glasses, but Sure, yeah. So, I, I think I'll wish I was 25 in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. trust me, you will. You're 25. Yeah. You'll look back on it longingly. So, uh what have you been up to? You know, you finish up when you're 20 and then um you're living in Rochester. Uh you know, how are you supporting yourself? Like what's going on? The goal was to just, you know, fortunately, I think the anxiety was pretty bad, anxiety and depression at that time. So fortunately, my parents were letting me uh, stay at home. They didn't mind uh, what I was doing. And I wanted to just dedicate myself to writing, to try and read and write as much as possible and put myself through uh, something similar to an English program at home. Okay. And and by the way, I think that provided your discipline is there and you're actually doing the work, I think this is totally doable. And, and yeah. I, you know, I, and I, I guess like you could argue that it's doable in any um, field. Like, you know, if you really wanted to get into physics, you could probably sit at home and teach yourself. But I think that um, it's, it's especially... You do surgery at home. Yeah, well, yeah right. <laughs> Just find some uh, roadkill and practice. Cadavers, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, but I think that it's especially applicable to writing or something like writing, uh, you know, the arts where... You know, ultimately, I think you have to be self-taught. I've spoken with plenty of authors on this show who went through the MFA program and you know took the academic track. I got my MFA, so I've been yeah. I've been down that road. But you know, looking back, I don't think it was absolutely um, necessary. I think in a lot well, of well, it did give you the time to work. I imagine. Yeah, I was going to say which you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. It was a luxury. It was a luxury in that sense. Um, but if you're living at home uh, and you have the same luxury of time. Uh, and the freedom sure. to to you know read all day and write all day, then you have pretty much everything you need. Then you know the onus is on you to get the work done, and and it seems like that's 
been the case, right? Yeah, I was fortunate in that way, and uh, a lot of trips to the library, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and uh, yeah. Okay, so did you? Did, how did? Okay, so how did you? Did, did you structure your days? Like when you have all this time and you have no boss and you have, you know, nobody telling you to be at class at such and such a time or whatever. Um, like, did you have to set up for yourself some sort of structure that you worked within or were you just like, well, I'll go to the library whenever I wake up and you know, like how, to, how did, how did you actually execute? Yeah, there was a loose structure to it. Just working from, it was at nine o'clock to three o'clock writing, just writing and writing and writing. Then after that, I would, I would go out and read and, and uh, you know, visit the library and whatnot. But, uh, but I, I, I had a lot of discipline that I, I wouldn't check my email until I was finished writing. And I, I can't imagine doing that now. Yeah. I wish I could do that. I need to be better about doing that. Like I was even thinking last, uh, this morning that, you know, I read my wife's, uh, iPad at night before bed because, you know, the lights are out and you can read on a digital device instead of having like, yeah. the, the light on. Uh, it's a, it's a big, it's a significant thing because if I could just turn the light on, I would read a book, but I can't turn the light on cause then my wife can't sleep. So um, I'm, I'm there with the iPad. And then of course, like I'm reading before bed, but I'm reading like online and I'm jumping from website to website and I'm reading crap. And then I'm reading like some essay and, you know, like it, and it's just like this kind of like herky jerky online reading experience. That's of course, like totally different than like a literary reading experience. And uh, just this morning I was telling myself, like, I, I gotta, you know, I gotta find a way to just like stay off the, the internet, you know, at night and get some book reading done. Yeah. It's hard. Seems to be harder and harder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like the thing too, is that if I'm being totally honest, when I'm in bed, um, like sometimes I'm really hungry for an online reading experience. Like I don't want to read a book. I want to read the internet and I want short bursts and I want to jump around and I don't want to be tied to one text. And, um, you know, what does that say about me? I'm worried about me. Well, I think there is, even if you're reading something on the internet, you still feel connected and dialed in in a way that you may not reading a, a physical book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and then it's just, you know, it's just like if you, you never can, you know, there's always an answer if you're bored. You're just like, okay, well, I'll just jump to the next thing and sure. then I'll go read some like horrible celebrity gossip. And then I'll like, you know, I'll, in order to make myself feel better about that, I'll read some like very serious essay. <laughs> you know, like, constantly, yeah. you constantly sort of like, you know, tack your sails, but um, with regard to, um, you know, your anxiety and, and you said depression was a part of that as well, like throughout these years and in the aftermath of getting out of, uh, you know, uh, your high school experience, like, did you, uh, go through therapy or take medication that helped you so that you could, um, function better? I'd say it's very up and down where I've been on and off medications, been in and out of therapy. And there was a period of time, about two years when I was really, really determined because I'm kind of wary about medication. I have very uh, mixed feelings about it. And, uh, you know, I, I hate that I'm on it right now, but it, it seems like the, the only thing to do, uh, what but you, I was what very into, uh, Paxil. What, and what is, forgive me for not knowing, but what is, is that an anti-anxiety medication? Antidepressant. Yeah. Anti-anxiety, antidepressant. Okay. Uh, but there was a time when I wanted to do everything as natural as possible. And I mean, I, I still follow a lot of that where uh, I'm big about what I eat and uh, what do you varying mean? the Chinese medicine and 
I try to eat as healthy as possible. Okay. <laughs> and no, I know that's vague. No, let's talk about this because this is big for me too. Like I'm, yeah. I'm very particular. I'm very like health conscious. Uh, if you know anyone who's listening, who's listened to this program for uh, a significant number of episodes has probably heard me talk about how susceptible I am to any like health related fad or trend. Like, like if you, like, for example, if you told me like right now that like celery, uh, improves your memory. Like I would immediately go start eating celery. Like I just, <laughs> I'm, I will fall for anything. So, yeah. um, but I like the idea and I think that this is, uh, this is, um, logical and sane, but, uh, I think it's smart and good to be cognizant of what you put into your body. And, and also oh, from, you know, not only from like a physical health perspective, but also from like a creative health perspective, like, I, you know, I know that there are people out there who can like chain smoke cigarettes and eat fast food and like churn out like wonderful novels. But, um, you know, for me, it's like, I want to feel good so that like I can do my best work and like whatever I've got to put into my body to make that happen, I'll do. And food for me, which I think maybe distinguishes me as a somewhat strange in comparison to a lot of people it, it, you know, it's not a super emotional experience for me. Like to me, it food is like fuel and, or it's medicine, mm. you know? And so I'm not sitting there like going, Oh, I've got to have this like, you know, blueberry muffin because it's going to make me happy. Or, you know, it's going to be this like, you know, awesome food experience that I'm going to like photograph and put up on social media. Like, <laughs> and I know people, yeah. I know people who are able to enjoy food in like a sensual way. And I, you know, it's not that I don't do that ever, but mostly it's like, okay, what do I need to like feel good and to like have good energy? And well, it sounds like you have more discipline. I don't know. Than the average eater. Maybe, or maybe I'm more neurotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, is that the way that you are? Or um, did I just like, yeah. T- yeah. Okay. Very, uh, very similar about my so, feelings towards food. Yeah. Do you eat meat? I eat meat. Uh, I try not to eat too much meat. I don't really eat red meat. Okay. What like what what do you not eat? Like what do you what do you uh stay away from? I don't think there are that many things that I don't eat, but I'm a big moderation person. I, I don't I, I try not to have any processed foods. Yeah. Try to keep everything as natural and home cooked as possible. Yeah. Like I, I, someone uh, a long time ago, just to prove my point again about people saying things to me about this sort of stuff and it sticks to my brain, but I remember this girl that I knew a long time ago looking at me one day and being like, you know that your stomach is the size of a fist? And like I looked down at my fist and I thought about like how much food I eat. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm disgusting. Like this is, this is all wrong. And, you know, it is, it yeah. is, it is incredible the uh, portion size that uh, many of us take in, myself included, on a lot of occasions. Yeah, there's a story today I, I read about uh, one billion people being obese in developing worlds. Something like that. Yeah. It's a problem. Just massive gains on obesity. So, okay. So you eat well, which is probably good for your uh, anxiety because I think like any kind of like neurochemical or, you know, um, I think those things are sort of tied together. If you're eating a bunch of shitty foods, it's probably not going to help at the very least. It definitely affects my mood. Okay. What I eat. Yeah. Uh, And then are you a big exerciser too? Yeah. um, Mostly... Things like yoga, take a lot of long walks. Yeah. yeah, that's like me too. So we're similar in temperament. Uh, because like I, you know, I, I find that like there are people who are like, you know, into exercise who like run like marathons and do like triathlons. And that's, yeah. that's too hardcore for me. Like I need like gentle exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, I'm, I'm like a 60 year old man with my exercise. <laughs> so like how often are you doing yoga? 
Oh, I try to do it every day. Oh, you do? Okay. Like a, yeah, practice at home. Yeah. So like a full like 90-minute practice or are you just doing like... Uh, it it varies. Okay. And you My s- sister is a yoga teacher, so oh. there's been a, a lot of yoga, yeah. That's good. In our lives. You know, I used to do yoga six days a week when I was in my 20s. Like going out to a, a studio to do it? Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. I had like, it was when I was in graduate school and I had like, you know, way more time than I do now. But, uh, that felt great though. Oh God. Yeah. I felt, I mean, it, yeah. after a while though, like it, uh, my back started to hurt just because I was, it was too much for, you know, I was doing too much, um, hardcore, you know, these classes were pretty difficult or whatever, but, uh, you know, if I just would have taken it down a notch, you know, I think it would be, it would have been fine. But I used to have this great system where I would like write, you know, and then I would, I would go to a yoga class and then I would go to my graduate school classes at night. And, uh, it's the best feeling. I don't know. It's like, what I always say is that it's like, uh, smoking pot without the paranoia. (laughs) Like you have this, you have this like great high and like this great, you know, especially after a good session or whatever. Um, Yeah. There's always that point where you, you kind of, yeah, you hit your runner's high. Yeah, exactly. And so, but you don't have any of like the head games or, you know, the laughing fits. Um, yeah. not, not that laughing fits are all that bad, but, um, you know, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. I think it's good. Uh, and so that's got to help too. So, you know, it sounds like you're doing like holistic things to, to take care of this. And then, you know, coupled with the Paxil, like you've got to be uh, fairly on top of it. Correct. Uh, you know, I, I'd always like to be more on top of it as on top of it as I can be. Do you do you have uh you know things nowadays where you're like I you know I'm not going out I'm staying in like do you get out socially? Not as much as I would like. Yeah. A lot of that has to do with having stayed in Rochester and and seeing a lot of people I went to school with uh, move on. I'm right. hopefully planning for a move. I'd like to move this spring if possible. To where? Some city. No, but you're maybe no- New York City. Yeah. You know? Yeah, why not? It's vague. Yeah, it's vague. Okay, so like, would but you it's do? So expensive, so expensive. Yeah, I mean that's the problem with cities. You know, it's like they're great to live in, but they cost a fortune. And New York, uh, you know, this is kind of a point that's been beaten to death, but it really is a pain in the ass for artistic people to try to survive there in a way that it, you know, it hasn't been in previous generations. You know, I, I th- yeah. I feel like the New York City of like the 1970s and the 60s and, you know, there, there were actual hives of artists living in Manhattan. And I don't know if that's really the case as much anymore, or at least not to the degree that it used to be. No, I mean, you could write a few book reviews and support yourself. Yeah, it wasn't too bad back then. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how I, I still have to figure out how I'd support myself if I move there. That's a big, big question. Well, you know, the, 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 what you do is you just start a podcast. It's an absolute goldmine. Really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a joke. But, uh, <laughs> well, you know, that, well, that'll be interesting. Do you have uh, – th- there's no fixed plan. It's just, like, possible in the spring. Very loose plan, but to keep my uh, eye on the prize, I'm always uh, looking at New York apartments and then feeling awful. What about and you like going and you want to live alone? You don't want to like live in like a group situation. <laughs> that would be the most economical way to do it. But I I love living alone. I, I I'm not a big fan of living with people. Yeah, you don't want to go into like a, a group home situation with complete strangers. That doesn't sound good to you. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend in New York right now. I think he's living in a place with seven other people, and and each one is from a different country, and and no one communicates well, and he just wants to get out of there. 
God. Yeah, I have a, you know, I have a buddy who like he's got like this a completely different approach than I do to everything that we're we're speaking of. Like uh when he moves to a city, he'll just take a room in somebody's house and uh live there. Couch surf. Well, or just be like, yeah, they need a, you need a roommate. Okay, I don't know you. Like I'll come in and like suddenly be living with like three people I don't even know. Um, and I realize there's economic necessity driving some of it, but the truth is that he's got some money. Like I know he, he could live in a studio if he wanted to. He actually likes the social aspect of living with other people, even if they're strangers. And then yeah. it, it's to the degree where like when he drives across the country, like he'll, let's say he's driving from California to Texas. He picks up hitchhikers. No, he, he will, uh, <laughs> he'll like advertise on Craigslist, like for a ride share and say like, yeah, you want to live like. That would never occur to me. I'd be like, they're going to, yeah, yeah. there's going to, I'm going to have a homicidal maniac in this car with me, or I'm just going to have somebody that like is just completely annoying for like a 30 hour drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah that's how he does things. And it just, it mystifies me. And then he'll the do personality it, type. I guess so. He'll do Airbnb. He'll just pull up into some town in Kansas and sleep on some random couch. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that wishes I had some of his sense of adventure, but I just feel like, uh, I just want like my own room, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, some sort of new. You want your own personal space? Yeah, I, I do, I, and I think that's maybe a, a, a writerly tendency as well. We all want a room of our own, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, what else can we talk about? You know, you've got uh, your 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 parents, rational people, your sister who's a yoga teacher. Uh, any other siblings? Like good relationships with your family? It sounds like. I'd say good relationship with my family. I, I think they've been surprisingly supportive of me not <laughs> not moving forward as quickly as they'd like. Yeah, you know, yeah, that that is actually like really. Uh, that's that's actually really. Uh, I don't know. I guess it it might be unusual. It's uh, a big cultural thing, you know. When you're in a, an Indian family, they they expect you to uh, go to college to have a certain amount of financial success and, and whatnot, but uh, I think they've been uh, pretty good about things. So, okay, so your parents, did they come over from India, or like what generation are you? First generation, my mom is actually from uh, England. Okay. And, and my, I mean, she's, uh, she is of Indian background, but she was born and raised in, in London and is very much culturally British. Does she have the accent, like the British accent still and everything? Yeah, but it, it's gone away over time. Really? You stay in this country long enough and, and you start to lose your accent, yeah. Oh, Even my dad, he doesn't have that strong Indian accent that you see uh, with stereotyped uh, Indian characters on TV. Oh, like I, I, the, the, the British accent in particular, I'm, uh, I'm sad for the loss of that because I feel like British people can say anything. Uh, and it sounds lovely to me, to yeah, my ear anyway, yeah. you know, they can say like something yeah. really, like really, uh, disgusting, but yet it sounds like sophisticated <laughs> with the British accent. Yeah. They always sound smart. It's great. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, like Tony Blair could be like reading the phone book and I'd be like, it's, he's a genius, you know? <laughs> um, okay. So what was it? Yeah. So like culturally, like, uh, you know, growing up as like in a first generation Indian American, like in Rochester, New York, like there, there couldn't have been a huge uh, Indian American community there, was there? Surprisingly big. I, I don't know what the reason was for that, but quite a few, uh, quite a few Indian families around here. Okay, and, and what? Why did your parents uh, wind up coming over? Family. Okay, having so family that moved into the area. Yeah. Okay, so there were other family members who preceded them. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. So brothers, like, so your aunts and uncles? Yeah. Okay. And so then your, your folks were just like, they were living in India at the time or were they in England? Uh, they, you know, they came separately. My mom came from England. My dad came from India and, and they, they were, uh, and, sort of matched up. Yeah. And they met here. Yeah. So, like, so matched up meaning like they got set up on a date or was it like an arranged thing? No, like, uh, their, their families, uh, knew each other. They were both living in Rochester. Uh, my mom's aunt and uncle and my, my dad's brother. And they, they just sort of said, you know, you, you two should uh, get together. And the rest is history. Sort of. And they got divorced and oh, they got remarried. Oh, they did. Okay, that's right. Um, okay, so when did they get? When did they split up? When I was around eighteen. Oh, okay. So like not too terribly long ago. No. Uh, well, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. Um, and then you have one sister. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so, like, when you were in high school. Um, did you have, like, were there lots of other Indian American kids in your school or did you feel, um, you know, like you were more of a a lone wolf in that regard or what was the situation there? And like, did that feed into your distaste for high school at all? I would say it was not a very prototypical Indian upbringing in that my mom did not speak any Punjabi or Hindi or any of the Indian languages. So we spoke strictly English in the household. We did not eat that much Indian food and my mom, who's a big kind of new age person, so we uh, she sort of raised us in a religion of her own devising, and uh, and okay. it wasn't. Uh, well, let's talk yeah. about that because this is this is interesting to me. I'm kind of uh, you know I'm a parent, and I am not uh, part of any religion. You know, I'm not raising my daughter, even though I was raised Catholic. I'm not continuing that legacy. So, uh, I at the same time, I still feel some degree of responsibility to. Um, you know, give her some sort of foundation in that regard. So what did your mom... Moral guidance, yeah. Well, moral guidance and also like a, you know, I, I think like right now anyway, and this is always evolving because I think uh, that's what these things do. You know, I'm, I'm always learning and changing my mind or whatever. But my approach at this point is just to make sure that I give my daughter, uh, first of all, like lead by example, you know, so that, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's going to probably be a more powerful uh instruction than anything I could do. So if I'm taking taking care of myself and being good in that way, um, but also like, you know, uh, giving her some sort of practice. So as opposed to, um, dogma, you know, or ideology, you know, or something, some belief system or something. Uh, so like I do like this meditation thing, uh, you know, twice a day, and she sees me doing that, and like I feel good about that because I, she's like, "Okay, Dad does this thing. I, it's something I do, but it's not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. But it's not something like I, f- I make her do." And yeah, it's not imposed upon her, but she can sort of observe it, and, and yeah, right. And it keeps me, it keeps me sane, it keeps me calm. So like that's like that's my formula right now. But I, you know, I'm kind of making it up as I go along. Like, wh- what did your mom do, and and do you think it was effective? I think it was effective in the sense that I, I think I embrace all religions or I, I don't have any uh, bad feelings or ill feelings towards any religions. We used to have a little prayer room in our house, which was basically a closet. And uh, what every Sunday we would go up there and there would be books of uh, Hinduism and Hindu icons and there would be crosses and, uh, you know, the Holy Bible and uh Islamic texts and there was just a whole medley of things, a lot of Sikh stuff, 
So, uh, so okay. and we would just read from different books and then try to embrace all the religions at once. You're, and you were all the whole family sitting in a closet. Whole family sitting in a closet. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, because uh, I've thought I've thought similarly that there should be one room in the house, even if it's a small room, that is devoted to like just like there's no there's not even any furniture in it. You just like sure. can, can go in there and just like chill out. Maybe there's like some cushions or something. Maybe uh, it's covered in sand. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, but what was you, what was feeding your mother? You know, like if she was kind of giving you guys like a, some sort of spiritual or religious curriculum as you were growing up, was she, I, mean, I guess she was just sampling widely and then just sharing stuff that she found interesting or was there like, was there more of a, a structure to her program than that? When I look back, I think she herself was sort of searching and, and exploring different belief systems and different religions and, you know, and you know, we were along for the ride a little bit. But that's, you know, that seems healthy to me. Like what? No, no, it was not unhealthy. Yeah. Right. It was was good. Because like, this is the thing about it. And and this is why I do have distaste for religion is that, uh, you know, in my experience growing up, it was like, you know, you have all these adults in your orbit who are like, yeah, we found it. Like, this is it. You know, this is our team and this is, this is our guy. And like, no one, like, it was like the, it was like the, uh, the, the, the exploration stopped. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the boat pulled yeah. up to shore and it's like, okay, here we are. We're done. And it's like, no, we're not done. And uh, like have some humility. Like this has got to be more of uh, an ongoing thing. Like just as a, just as a matter of um, humility and intellectual honesty. And, you know, I say that and I know that there are Catholics or people in other organized religions who do approach it that way. But like that just wasn't my broad experience. You know, it was just like. You know, I, I feel like people like the safe harbor of feeling like they found the thing, and uh, and no one can prove them wrong. And yeah, no one can prove them wrong. And it's just like, okay, I got my story, I got my thing, I got my, you know, my team, and and this is it. And I don't want to think about this anymore because if I start to question it and the legs of the table start to wobble, uh, it's going to make me scared. And yeah, uh, I you know I would prefer that feeling of uh, wobbling. Why wow, suddenly I've picked up this table metaphor. I don't know what's going on, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like if the, the, yeah, yeah. the, the top of the table is the belief in the legs or I don't know, whatever. I'm not interested in questioning it and challenging the idea, just accepting it blindly. Yeah. Or just, yeah, it just seems like uh, I I'm, I'm a person who would like to have ongoing discussions about this stuff. And uh, currently, because like I said, this, this, this stuff is always changing, but currently I'm very into the idea of, uh, having something to do rather than having something to believe like like you know i'm not interested in religion or in spiritual pursuits at the level of belief too much i feel like that's where things get sticky i think it's like Mm. how are you going to actually live your life like doing a yoga practice every day uh as a way to like make yourself calm and more present or whatever uh meditation same it's the same deal i mean it's the same exact aim i think and um, those are things you do. And so that makes, that makes it make more sense to me as opposed to like, uh, you know, getting involved in all this kind of like really ideological thought and, you know, belief structure. Yeah, I, I can definitely, uh, share a lot of that. So that idea is what you practice TCM or I mean, not TCM, TM. No, I mean, I've, I've never paid. I, this is the, I have a, that's my problem with TM is that like, I can't afford it. Like I, I'm just not going to spend two grand to like learn how to like, you know, get a mantra. But there is a thing online that was founded by former TMers where they sell you like a digital instruction and it's like an MP3. And I've taken that uh, where, you know, I've listened to it and then you just pick, you pick a two syllable mantra and basically repeat it over and over again as you meditate. 
Yeah. Um, and I've done that and it's been fine, you know, but like, I just, uh, you know, basically just follow the breath. I, I'll say like in, out, uh, deep, slow, you know, I'll just have like a little like procession of things that I do. And when I lose the, the thread, uh, I just start over again or I'll count my mm. breath. I'll count my breaths, you know, but just like two 20 minute sessions. If I can, if I can manage it, uh, a day like has made like a, a discernible, good difference for me that's just yeah i can imagine yeah that sounds like a good practice yeah you know just trying to uh stay awake basically um yeah and like i think that's the function of it is that uh and i think like i I think the function of it is that you know you realize how often you're asleep (laughs) uh once you take a second to kind of stop like it can get really difficult just to stop like just to sit down like you can feel this like or at least i can feel this like huge like inner resistance where it's like, I just want to keep like surfing the internet. (laughs) I need to check my phone. And like, you know, there's this weird like compulsion to keep thinking and you know, your brain just wants to keep going and going and going. And just the act like twice a day of stopping and sitting down and shutting up and closing my eyes and just watching the crazy show. And like, hopefully it settles down Uh, that I think that's it. You know, and then by by virtue of that, I've I've come to realize um, how little of like of that there was in my life previously. Like you're just like holy shit! Like this is just on autopilot. Like I'm just I'm going nuts twenty four. You know, every waking minute of my day. Yeah, it seems to anchor you. Yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, let's not give me too much credit, but <laughs> <laughs> it gives me something to do. It gives me something to do, and uh, that for whatever reason is uh, is important for me right now. So. Um, so that's cool though. So your mom was uh, exploring this stuff The the family was like in, in a closet on Sundays. Like, was this an every, was this an every Sunday thing you guys are packing? Yeah, definitely an every Sunday thing at the same time. What was it like 12 o'clock? I would sort of have to be uh, dragged kicking and screaming into that closet. I can imagine. I did not want to go into that closet. How big of a closet are we talking? (laughs) Oh, tiny closet, tiny closet where everyone's knees are touching. Yeah. Way too small. Oh God. Okay. And so we're the, uh, like, was there music or singing or anything like that? Like, no, no. I think, I think the uh, you know little incense and a lot of books. That's about it. So it was okay. The door closed. Door open. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was open to crack. Yeah, because with open the to crack. with the incense, it could be overpowering. You know? Yeah, we don't want to suffocate. No, 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 no. Okay. Um, and so was your dad on this same wavelength? I mean, if your parents uh, split up, then maybe not. But I mean, like, was he into it too, or? He, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't talk to him about religion that much, but I, I don't think he's a person that has much belief. He goes along for the ride. So he was just okay. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'll sit with the family. Yeah. Yeah. He's not, he's not your typical, uh, Indian dad. Yeah. Like why, why are, are t- cause I forgive me for not knowing, but what is a typical Indian dad? I, I just think of, uh, an Indian dad of the way that I observe them being a little more, little more starch collar uptight kind of people and uh you know he's a chain smoking steak eating kind of guy okay he still chain smokes no he had to give that up oh he did okay yeah Yeah. like i I, i'm mystified by people who can chain smoke and i say this as a former smoker like i physically even when i was smoking unless i was like really drunk could not physically do it. Like I just, my body couldn't take it. Like I don't understand people who can smoke a pack a day. That seems like Herculean to me. 
Yeah, you're, you're taking in a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I did it. But he, yeah, he somehow pulled it off. So, um, okay. So, you know, growing up uh, Indian, uh, being a writer, I mean, I, I was reading your, uh, your self-interview on The Nervous Breakdown. Uh, where you kind of make this joke, you know, you're like, I'm not the author of The Lowlands, which is the the Jhumpa Lahiri novel. Is that correct? Yep. Um, so do you feel uh, like like you get unfairly lumped into some sort of category as a as an Indian American or an Indian, Amer- you know, Indian American author? Is that something you resist? Do you feel like you're a part of like some sort of community in that regard? I would... I would say it's just not something that's interested me to write about as of yet. And I have had a lot of weird experiences with agents and publishers where they've approached me based on something I wrote about India or a story with Indian characters. And then when I show them more work, then they completely, uh, <laughs> their, their interest is withdrawn. What, what do you mean when you show them more work that that deals with Indian uh, characters? Like think? if I know if I publish a story with Indian characters, I, I have a good I I don't know maybe half the time I'm going to get an agent query where they they want to see more work. Really? There's just a there's a market for it. Right. Well, right. I mean, yeah. do you feel like with your name and with your um, cultural background, like that there are some like is there some like weird set of expectations that you feel is placed upon you as a, a writer of Indian descent, you know, where they want you to kind of tick certain boxes and write certain kinds of stories. You know what I'm saying? Like, is there like an identity that you feel people want you to sort of fit into that you resist? I think there's that space hasn't seemed to be carved out yet with uh, first generation people not writing ethnic fiction uh, it's you know it's a kind of a gray area uh it, difficult to navigate maybe but I, I i don't know if there's that much of an expectation being heaped on me yeah i mean i don't know i mean i guess like as a first generation um american i guess when you once you tell people that they would maybe sort of expect that you would write about that in a certain way but um I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's what you're doing or am I wrong? It's just not a fiction that's appealed to me. Yeah. And I, I don't know how to reconcile the, how to, you know, the, the theme of a lot of those books is what it means to be Indian. And I, I just don't know if that's a theme that I'm not interested in exploring right now. At well, least. Okay. So how strongly did you like, as like growing up, um, did like, how strongly did you feel your Indianness, like, was it a really pronounced thing for you, or was it like enough of an assimilated community in Rochester, and you know that you were just like, oh, whatever, you know, I'm an American, and did it feel that way, or did you feel um, in any way other or something? I think in a small way, you always feel a little bit other if you're you're a minority in a uh, different country, but uh, you know, I, I think everyone that I came into contact with was a extremely accepting and the high school I went to people were were pretty uh pretty nice so I I don't have too many stories of being uh too many incidents of racism or just being treated differently I I think I think it was a pretty American upbringing right right and then uh you know you you're one of the major themes of your book uh is fame is that right? Yeah. I mean, so, like, like, what's the preoccupation there? Like, how did you get 
how did your brain get its hooks into that one? Uh, I mean, one can guess, but I mean, do you have, is this something you've been, you know, uh, thinking about for uh, a lot of your life? Do you have like a desire to be famous? I should not have a desire to be famous because I, I, (laughs) I'm terribly anxious. I hate meeting new people. Everything about fame should just drive me away. But I, I think in small ways, everyone craves fame because it's that ultimate kind of acknowledgement. Yeah. You're getting a, a massive validation. And uh, I, I think that's what's interesting about it to me is it's that ultimate reali- realization of being validated. Well, and, no, but, uh, but like, let, let's think about this because if you, if you couple the notion of fame with what we were talking about uh, with regard to your anxiety, like it would seem like fame uh, – would be I can see where fame would be like a, a preoccupation of yours because it holds the the promise of that validation, but it also holds like some of your greatest fears. <laughs> you know, like like yeah, red, yeah. You know, I'm picturing you walking a red carpet right now for some reason, but just like flash bulbs popping and like microphones in your face and yeah, that's never gonna happen. That's ne- <laughs> <laughs> but you never know, man. Like there are cases where people have the you know anxiety, uh, you know, feelings of strong anxiety or whatever, and that, that they find a way to work through it? Like, do you hold any hope that like maybe sometime down the road, um, you know, you'll find a way to make it manageable or you'll, you know? Well, uh, yeah, definitely. I think I have to hold on to that hope. If I want to move, if I want to function as an individual, I, I have to do better. So, okay. So let's say you move to New York this spring. Um, sure, and yeah. you're in your apartment, you find, you find some place, uh, you, you know, Hopefully it's your own room. I'm not going to try to make you anxious. <laughs> you've got, you've got a, like a nice small studio apartment completely to yourself. Um, but let's say that like you have to go out and do job interviews or something, or you have to you know take some job where you're interacting with people. Um, if you start to feel you know anxious or you know you, you can kind of sense like internally that you're having difficulty, like do you have something you do? Like is there are there, I... are there steps in place? I think over time I've become more comfortable with the idea. I, I think there was definitely a time when uh, I, I would just feel weird about getting up and leaving or telling people that I feel uncomfortable, and now I just don't care. I would just walk up and you know leave. Like and, even in it, but what about in a professional context? I, I, I would still leave. It <laughs> could be problematic, Ravi. I'm just gonna. Yeah, throw that, that could be there. problematic. But if you have, uh, like, what would, would you have any, um, can you point to anything specific that would tend to make you uncomfortable? Like, let's say you're at a party or you're out with some friends. Is it like something specific behaviorally that's happening in your midst? Or is it just like suddenly you just get the itch and you bail? Yeah, it could just be suddenly getting the itch and, and bailing. I can't always anticipate when it's going to happen. It's so funny that you to hear you say this because my uh, my buddy who I was talking about earlier with like the... Uh, is it glossophobia, the fear of public speaking? Um, I don't even know the term, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it's like, and it's like the number one most common uh, fear in the world, I think, is fear of public speaking. Yeah, I heard it's, uh, it's higher than death. Yeah, so he's, you know, it's a very common thing, but you know, he's got like coupled with that this social anxiety, and he also, uh, in his day, smoked like a hell of a lot of pot, which doesn't help. <laughs> no. um, and I just remember like when I was living with him, that people would be over and we'd all be hanging out and like suddenly he would be in the shower, like uh, apropos of nothing. And like, that was yeah. like his hiding place. He would just go take a shower constant, like a long shower. <laughs> and, 
And it sounds like a pretty good hiding place. Yeah. yeah. You're like, maybe this could be like a tool you could use, but he would just like, we'd be like, after a while I sort of picked up on it and I would like go knock on the door and be like, dude, what's going on in there? <laughs> you know? And he'd be like, I just need a moment. And he would, you know, he would just retreat to the bathroom for that reason. Yeah. Um, so I don't mean to make light of it. You know, I'm just trying to like bring a little level. Oh no, it's, it's fine. I, I love poking fun at it. Yeah. You have to, right? Yeah, you have to. Otherwise it just gets, uh, like uncomfortably serious. And it's, Absolutely. and you know, and the, there's like, like I said, there's a lot of humor in your work. You're probably, uh, if we, if we could push this to the side, I would imagine you're, uh, you'd be a hell of a lot of fun at a party. I mean, can you enjoy yourself at a party? Can I enjoy myself at a party? Not right now. Not right now. Not right now. Okay. Like, but like, what about like three or four people? Like, are you good in small groups? I can do small groups. I can do, I can do a small group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's sort of how I am too. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like you know, a hundred people in a, in an apartment or something that, that no, I don't know where to stand. I don't know where to put my hands. I, I don't know. Yeah. I just go to a corner. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, where's the, uh, okay. And so do you, and do you drink or, uh, do any kind of drugs at all aside from the pharmaceuticals that you, uh, are prescribed? I'm not a big drinker, yeah. not a big drinker. Before this, I drank a glass of scotch because I was so nervous about it. You've sounded fine, dude. Maybe that's because yeah. of the scotch. <laughs> that's probably because of the scotch. Yeah. It's a scotch and Paxil. It makes uh, yeah. for a wonderful conversation. But the uh, best, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know what? You're not the you're not the first person who has drank scotch prior to uh, talking to me. I had Elizabeth Allen, uh, the writer, in this actually in studio. She was here in Los Angeles, and uh, she's the only author that ever showed up to my place and asked for alcohol. <laughs> She's like, do you have any whiskey or scotch? And I was like, I indeed I do. And I remember I poured her a glass of Macallan and uh, it set her straight. So, I, you know, it's good. Yeah, from listening to this podcast, mental illness seems to be a, a common theme. Well, you know, I, it, mental illness, whether it's like clinical and, you know, in, you know, in the box or it's just like uh, general malaise uh, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, is not only, I think, endemic to the, the writing profession because it comes with so many challenges and you're mining uh, so much interior space and dealing with, um, you know, it's like it's like a it's a really naked experience. So it's like you know it it unearths it, it unearths some stuff. But yeah. I also think people in general, every person is suffering and is dealing with stuff. And uh, I hope that in talking about it with people. Um, you know, whether they're on meds and they've, you know, been in therapy or whether they're just, uh, you know, bummed out or neurotic or whatever it is, would find something relatable about that because, you know, that's, it seems, it seems normal to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, and, I, and I find it, um, a, like a relief to talk about it rather than to just kind of like, you know, have no, it's very therapeutic. Have you ever listened to, uh, what is it? The mental illness happy hour podcast? You know, I want to say I have, I want to say I have like, or I, or I downloaded, I downloaded with the intention to listen, but I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with it, but what, like, what do they do? They like, they have somebody on who's got like a specific mental illness and then they just, yeah, basically they just have entertainers, comedians on talk about their, their stuff. And, uh, you feel great afterwards, right? Even, even if, just as a listener, yeah. Like, and, and even if only by comparison, you're like, well, I'm anxious, but I'm not as anxious as that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least I'm not that guy. Uh, well, cool, man. Well, listen, uh, you did great. I, I, if you would, not, if we would not have talked about it, I would not have known that uh, 
that you were uh, anxious and drinking scotch. Um, but, uh, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I congratulate you on the book. Uh, I encourage you, um, or I encourage you, I wish you well uh, on your potential move in the spring and dealing with this anxiety thing. Uh, I think that um, you have good cause to not be anxious for what it's worth. I don't know what that Thank makes you. Sense. Does that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, step out there. I'm taking it as a compliment. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, I feel like, you know, if, once you get out there, like you, this can be managed. You don't have to go to big parties. Big parties are, I, I understand that. Like, just try to find like a good group of three or four people in Brooklyn and, you know, keep, do, keep doing your writing and, and find Start some, a band. Yeah. Start a band, yeah, right? Start a band and, and the rest will be history. Um, yeah, that, that's a dream. All right, man. Well, listen, it was good talking to you and uh, I wish you luck. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. All right, you guys, there you have it. That's Ravi Mangla. Nice guy. Go get his novella. It's called Understudies, and it's available now from Outpost 19. You can find Ravi online at ravimangla.com. You can find him on Twitter at Ravi underscore Mangla, and he's also on uh, Goodreads and the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program. Uh, to keep up with new episodes and also to get access to premium content and the full archives, which include conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Ben Fountain, Maria Semple, Jamie Attenberg, Sam Pink, Lydia Millet, you name it. And uh, for only two bucks a month, you get access to all of it. So go get the free app. Uh, it's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And then once you get the app, you can go premium and subscribe right there within the app. Okay? Uh, all right. Uh, hey, listen, I don't mean to preach about uh, purging stuff and about meditating. I feel weird <laughs> uh, that I'm talking about this stuff. Meditate, don't meditate. Uh, it's obviously your call. Uh, I'm just doing my thing. You want to get rid of your stuff? That's great. Give it away. Otherwise, keep it. Do whatever you want. Are you a hoarder? Do you fetishize objects? I'm not here to judge. I'm just sharing thoughts in real time uh, without really uh, thinking about them. <laughs> Please remember that Adolf Hitler typed with two fingers and that Andre Breton died of heart failure precipitated by a massive asthma attack. That's it for now. Thanks again to Ravi Mangla for drinking alcohol and talking with me. Go get his novella. It's called Understudies. Uh, I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another writer. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you stay warm, and I, I hope you begin your new year on the right foot, whatever that means. I'm going to try to do that. Personally, I'm going to try to make 2014 the best year uh, so far. I feel like 2013 is kind of growing on me the more that I ponder it. Uh, it was a crucible year in a lot of ways. Uh, there were uh, challenges, but uh, I experienced personal growth. Incidentally, I wish people made a sound when they experienced personal growth. <laughs> like uh, I wish there was some sort of uh, sonic indicator, like a squeaking noise or uh, perhaps a low moaning sound. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was just like a human thing that this noise would occur when personal growth happened, when there was like some sort of evolution uh, of the soul. That way other people would know. Uh, you would uh, be sitting there and you would hear this low uh, moaning sound across the room. And then immediately you would understand uh, that this person in your midst was having uh, an epiphany or something. Does that make sense? I always feel the need to apologize at the end of every episode. <laughs>